welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Aaron Barry, a producer whose credits include Darken, Kidnap Capital, Ice Road Truckers, Destination Fear, and the Netflix series Slasher. His second feature as a writer-director, Magic, just had its Canadian premiere at the Blood in the Snow Film Festival over the weekend. Set in the fall of 2008, it stars Paula Brancati, friend of the show, as a conspiracy debunker who finds reality itself becoming unstable after she meets with a man who claims to have knowledge of an alien presence on Earth. It's a clever, economical little thriller, and you should keep an eye out for it on the festival circuit. Aaron picked Dune, the epic adaptation of Frank Herbert's massive sci-fi novel that was supposed to be the Christmas 1984 blockbuster for Universal Studios and writer-director David Lynch, but instead became a disaster so spectacular that everyone involved more or less disowned it. A pricey all-star production of a complex book rendered almost incomprehensible in the edit, it holds a certain allure three and a half decades later, for good or ill, as one of the most ambitious studio pictures ever mounted, and one of the biggest failures. On the one hand, it put Lynch together with Kyle MacLachlan, who'd be his definitive leading man in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, and on the other, well, it's a mess. This is someone else's movie. I guess uh, sort of. I, I guess I should give my personal history with uh, with both the film and the book. Um, Please. Uh, so David Lynch's film comes out in 1984. Uh, I'm 14 years old. Uh, this is, of course, the year after uh, Return of the Jedi has come out, which, of course, as a young science fiction nerd, that's exciting. But it's also, you know, the last Star Wars film. There are going to be no more Star Wars movies. So, and then suddenly there's this advertising, which it had at the time a huge saturation ad campaign for the film. Oh, yeah, it was everywhere. Um, people people and do not. Basically, yeah, and, and basically promoting that it was a movie starring Sting. Because um, <laughs> he's really the only recognizable star at the time. And back then, Sting was huge. The Police had just released Synchronicity, I think, the year before. Great album. I'm a huge Police fan. I'm like, oh, Sting's in this crazy science fiction movie, but what is this Dune? My dad reads a lot of sci-fi. He's like, oh, it's a, it's a great book. You should read it. Of course, he had a copy on his uh, shelf. And so me and my friends, we all start reading Dune and we're obsessed with Dune. Then the movie comes out and we're like, wow, that was really weird. Because <laughs> um, uh, the theatrical cut is, which I hadn't actually watched in a long time. I actually watched it last night and realized how horrible it is. <laughs> And 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 not to to and, and it's unfortunate because there exists other versions, which is why I'm so fascinated by the film. Um, the theatrical cut runs at 137 minutes, and this was do, uh, David Lynch disowns the film because he did not have final cut. He fought with uh, not even Dino De Laurentiis who produced it, but Raffaella, his daughter, who was only like 28 at the time. Like she was really young. This was the first movie she, her daddy, let her produce on her own. Right. Like she was doing two films in Mexico, like back to back, right? That and the yeah. sequel. Also, it was a 45 million dollar budget, which is huge by 1982, 83 standards when they went to camera. Um, plus, also, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, that this was only David Lynch's third film. He was a weird choice. He'd done Eraserhead, which was basically a student film done for no money. Then he'd he'd done uh, Elephant Man with uh, Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt. And then he's like, okay, he he was like the hot guy in Hollywood. Uh, Lucas wanted him to direct Jedi, apparently, and he said no. The only reason he 
he was approached by Dino De Laurentiis and Raffaella De Laurentiis to do Dune. He was like, I've never read this book. So he, he had no affinity with the material. He was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it on the condition that you then finance my next movie and you ask to be whatever I choose. And that movie turns out to be Blue Velvet, which is great. And he had final cut on that. And that, to, that was also, I think, you know, when I watch that film, it's like, okay, this guy really does know how to make a movie. Sure, Because yeah. certainly prior to that, <laughs> I'd seen... I hadn't seen it. I'd only yeah, seen I was going to say, you would have been too young to have seen yeah. the films. Yeah, um, even like Blue Velvet, I think, you know, I saw it on, on VHS and, you know, it's still a restricted movie and you're like, who is this Dennis Hopper guy? He's nuts. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So that's, I mean, if you can say anything about how horrible Dune is as a, as a theatrical cut of it, at least it got us Blue Velvet, um, which I think is, is in many ways uh, David Lynch's greatest film. Um, but what's fascinating about the film and you realize... Subsequently is how David Lynch did not have final cut over it. He had written apparently, because he he has credit as the screenplay, he had other writers, but he got the final credit, yeah. um, had written a, basically a three-hour version and had intended it to be a three-hour film. And, of course, at the time they're like, no, it has to be a two-hour movie. And he was apparently constantly fighting with with uh, De Laurentiis on the runtime, and that's where he ends up with a runtime that's like under two hours and 20 minutes. And it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it really is. And you can you even realize how horrible it is once you see the subsequent, what they released later was a, uh, a TV version oh, the, that's the TV cut, yeah. three hours long, which I probably saw in the mid-90s. It's cropped. I saw like probably again on VHS. I'm that old on like, uh, it was like a, a, a full frame version, panned and scanned. Oh, it's horrible. With fade outs for, for where commercial breaks go, which would then also repeat sequences where you'd come back from commercial break and you'd have the same stock shot of a spaceship going by. Uh, voiceover narration starts with this history of Dune with uh, some unknown, uncredited narrator with conceptual art explaining what happened 10,000 years ago, which if you read the books about the Butlerian Jihad, why there's no computers, because they had a huge war with thinking machines and banished them, and that's kind of a religious credo, and there's no machines in the future, and now there's spice, which enhances uh, mental abilities, allows the guild navigators to fold space, the Jenny Bezeret to have their power, and and the Mentats, which you know is the two for Howitt and uh, Brad Dourif as as uh, as uh, the Harkonnen uh, 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 Mentat to like do all the complicated calculations. Yeah. So um, it it is all incredibly arcane and complex, yeah. and unnecessary in another way. Like that that's the idea that you need a prologue dump that you need to just tell us all this stuff. The thing I think <sighs> the theatrical cut gets right is that it shows rather than tells. It's up to us to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, there's still there are still issues I think with it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of the the voiceover narration, um, like inner monologues, which is a, a, a feature of the book, which 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 Does Lynch not work on kind screen. of used, yeah. extended into it, and you're literally it's verbatim what was written in the book. Where these these whole sequences, where it's like. A great example is that whole sequence where the the hunter seeker, the little needle, comes into his room and it's going to kill him. And you've got this whole voiceover of him like, if I move, it'll get me. I get, it'll be slippery on the bottom. Like, that's all from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it, the sequence is just ridiculous. Um, um, so you realize both from the extended cut, which is three hours long, which Lynch also was like, this can't go on TV with my name on it. So if you see that version, it's actually an Alan Smithy film. Right. Written by Judas Booth. Yeah. yeah. He took both credits Back, out. 
back when they they would still allow the DGC uh, DGA sorry would allow you know directors if they thought their 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 work was or their name was being mangled or, or misrepresented they could take their name off a movie. Um, so I, I watched the theatrical cut. The other thing I then then watched because I've I've sort of done a deep dive into fan edits because there've been numerous fan edits where people have taken both versions mm-hmm. plus deleted scenes from the DVDs and 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 made basically the ultimate version. The one I recommend, the one I watched last night, I watched it several times, and it's probably the best version based on all the footage we know it exists. It, and it's on YouTube, so you can watch it. And it's in mostly in HD. There's some parts that he's taken from from the DVD, so they're 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 sort of SD. So sometimes the quality drops down. Um, and it's called if you search and call the alternative edition Redux fan edit from 2012 by Spice Diver. Okay, it runs at 178 minutes, and he's he's taken all the best pieces and been much more faithful to the book than than either the theatrical cut or the 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 Alan Smithy TV version. Plus, taken other pieces that he's he's been able to find. And he's actually redone it like the 2012, he first released it in 2008, got feedback from people, then redid it in like 2010. And then he's like, okay, this is my final redux. This is the final defense. This is as good as I can make this movie based on what we have. Um, The other unfortunate thing is, of course, David Lynch has been asked by Universal, I believe owns the rights, to say, hey, would you come in and do it yourself? And he's like, absolutely not. Oh, no, I he want, will not touch I it. Won't, I, I don't want, want to put it behind me, which I, I admire because I think generally when directors go back, like I think you know, Coppola has done himself a disservice by recutting uh, everything. Apocalypse Now twice and neither version I think is as good as the theatrical version. I don't think anyone thinks the special editions of Star Wars are better. Um, they just, I mean, we're, we're recording this the week that Disney Plus released a new different cut. Of oh my God, the, really? The new, well, the new different cut of Star Wars, the original Star Wars, now has Greedo say McClunky before he gets oh. shot. An inserted shot of him saying a word that makes no sense, which is, I, you haven't seen this on Twitter, it's been like two days of buzzing about this, oh. which I find absolutely fascinating because it, why? So, why would you even so do did, this? So does Han still shoot first? Yes. Yeah. No, sorry. No, the, Greedo the, the, shoots first. They still do that. Right, uh, right, but, Greedo, yeah, okay. But now the last thing Greedo says, untranslated, is McClunky. And I'm assuming it's going to be a joke in a Star Wars movie somewhere down the line now because or, some creator will make fun of it. Or it somehow ties in with Mandalorian. That must Maybe, be it. But, oh, God. I mean, that would be great if that is the whole point of it, but no. Uh, <sighs> someone, was it maybe Scott Tobias had made this beautiful argument saying that this is like George Lucas's last fuck you. He does this, <laughs> sells the company. Like the last act is to screw up Greedo's scene one more time. <sighs> but with, um, with Lucas... I mean, this actually speaks to the, the, mm-hmm. to the Dune issue with Lucas. When we see the recutting, mm-hmm. it's someone who's fussy and can't let go and is convinced yeah. that he can do it better. Yeah. But with, with Lynch, I almost admire well, – in fact, I do admire just walking away from it yes. and declaring it unsalvageable. Yeah. It's like uh, – I and, and it may have been, you know, again, a very young filmmaker at the time. He probably regrets – because I, I, you know, I still feel myself young, and certainly things that I've done in earlier films, I would never do like sure, now. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe it was like having too much money and too much resources too soon, and you know, realizing he'd messed it up. And it may have just been a, a really arduous process of you know, uh, 
dealing with a producer who's trying to, you know, change everything and then seeing bastardized versions of this film and going, forget it, I've moved on, I've made, you know, a dozen movies since and I don't care anymore. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to me that because it's Lynch, we insist it can be saved. Mm-hmm. Right? We've all been I you know, even then in nineteen eighty in I guess it would be eighty six when Blue Velvet came out and he was mm-hmm. doing a press tour and talking about yeah. how Dune made it possible and how it's not the version he wanted to make. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, I'd love to see his cut. Yeah. Because you assume there will be intent. You assume that David Lynch did at one point somehow make sense of this gargantuan elephantine epic. And I don't know that that's true. Yeah. And, and yeah, certainly there are there are things that he, he diverts from the book that, you know, fans have a lot of problems with, the weirding modules with using right, sound. Is, the kung fu stuff that we're is, Yeah, is totally an invention that he came up with as a way to avoid doing, like, cheesy kung fu in the weirding way. Um, again, probably not the worst idea. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, the again, the, we spoke about the inner monologue voiceovers mm. that he constantly uses that were, I think, very clunky dramatically. Yeah. Um, is this such an uncharacteristic? I mean, there are parts of it that are very Lynchian, Harkonnen with his skin all deformed. The guild navigator, navigator is yeah. really, he's just, oh, I can make my the baby from Eraserhead on a huge scale and have its mouth animated like a little vagina puffing of spice gas, and this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, you can see but, why he would take the, the yeah. job, right? And the Lynchian bits in it, which some, and the Harkonnens just become this like, overly the top, laughing hysterically, both Raban and, and, and the Baron, yeah, yeah. and it's like, that is not the character in the book who's very conniving, and I mean, yes, he's fat, he, he levitates because he is so fat, but he doesn't have weird skin diseases, He's not just the personification of evil like he is in 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 Lynch's film, which is just so like over the top ridiculous. Yeah. Which I really like watching it sort of twice uh, yesterday was like <laughs> Jesus, right? It really goes over the top, and that's something also that the the spice uh, diver. Uh, fan edit addresses in some points. He's like, I'm going to cut out. He, he actually has extensive notes of what he's changed. And he's oh, like, wow. I cut out this part. I cut out the part where, you know, Raban is like kicking over a dwarf or laughing hysterically in the scene because they're comical enough. We get it. Um, I, I so, kind of feel like that's his, the because because Lynch at his heart is an old man, even in, in his 20s. <laughs> He's, you know, he's a guy who's who's rooted in that 50s suburbia imagery, and it's his comfort zone, which is why he keeps despoiling it in, in Blue Velvet and things. And I, I think this was his idea, the read of his book is like, oh, you know what, they're capitalists, they're fat cats. And so he makes the most exaggerated version of like a 1920s newspaper cartoon of a man in a tuxedo puffing a cigar. Yeah. And it's just situated into this world where no, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, it's and that's yeah, and you realize well maybe that's not exactly the right approach <laughs> to Dune uh, because it's really not what the book is really about. But um, given unlimited resources, this is where his mind. Yeah, goes. And, and given like you know here he wasn't like he inherited a screenplay. They were like, hey, we want you to do it. So so go and do it. You know, and 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 like I said, he had never read the book before, so it was all new to him. Um, at the time there were only, I think that novel and the first, the, the first of the other three. So uh, yeah, there was a, there was a paperback box set that I got yeah, around that time. Uh, God Emperor was one. Yeah. God Emperor was, I think just came out, but there was like Dune Messiah and, and Children of Dune. And you can see like even that first scene with the, the emperor is kind of taken from Dune Messiah, which opens with its, 
it's sort of it's it's the sequel to to Dune, where it's it's the the descendant of of the Emperor is talking with the Guild Navigator how they can regain power, mm. and I guess that was sort of the genesis of like, well, we should show a Guild Navigator because you never see them in in Dune. They're sort of mentioned. No one's ever no one ever sees them because you know they're so deformed. Right. And, but of course, that's the thing that Lynch most wants course, to show us. You know, and that's basically the opening scene, and it's a great scene. I I, I love it with uh, you know, and it's so Lynchian. It's the huge tank, which, you know, again in Doom the Science described as a small little pod, you know, and here it's this massive, yeah. you know, it's thing that has to get rolled out with guys, you know, uh, mopping up uh, slime on the floor. <laughs> like, what is it emitting slime all over the place? Um, coolant. So, it's always coolant in the future. Yeah. Anyway. But that so, world that he builds, the, the, the organic ugliness of all of it, mm-hmm. he never, uh, he never lets us forget that it's Grotesque, like all of this is achieved as a, at a cost. That people are squishy and oozy and and gross and miserable. Even the mentat, you know, they look reasonably like people, but their eyebrows give them away. There's something yes. wrong with everything. And their their stained lips and oh, all that's that, right, with that the stuff as well. Um, and the blue eyes from the spice contamination. Yeah, just this sense that everything in the future has gone slightly away from. Yes, an organic original place. Yes, even though you're you're seeing this future where there's there's essentially no aliens either, which is very and it's very sort of feudal and sort of you know almost you know uh, you know almost like like medieval or sort of more fantasy than yeah, anything yeah. else, which which does sort of play in the book, um, but. Uh, the, one of the other main differences from the book um, is well, there's a couple of things that that uh, that uh, the the name Modib he in the film he refers to as the crater in the second moon. It's actually in the book it's a desert rat, which if you've ever seen the, the sci-fi uh, miniseries, they have a really bad. Oh, the William Hurt one. Yes, the yeah. William Hurt one. A little animated rat that looks so terrible. And he's like, what's that? Oh, that's Modib. And that's how he takes his name. And you're like, okay, maybe the, maybe he realized at the time having him named after a rat maybe wasn't so good. The, the other huge change in the, that is unforgivable to most Dune fans is the ending of the theatrical cut. And I, and I guess also probably the TV cut as well, where he becomes... He is a god, and it rains on Dune because right. it's quite established in the ecology that rain actually water kills sandworms. So basically, at the end, all the sandworms are dead, and there's no more spice. So you've destroyed the universe at the end, and it's just so. And there's also this that cheesy line, which I, I couldn't even believe it when I was again hadn't watched that that theatrical cut in so long. Where the the final voiceover is from Princess Erlon. Where she says, where there was war, Modib would bring peace. Where there was hatred, Modib would bring love. Again, no. Like, <laughs> that's, that, 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 what happens also in the subsequent books is that, you know, his jihad has spread throughout the galaxy. Like everyone, and it's, that's why he also has issues with, because he can see the future and he knows it's not good because he's basically started a holy war throughout the universe. But it's a very sort of Disney kind of version that, um, that, uh, that, that, you know, the De Laurentiis, I think, imposed upon it, you know, and on the whole rain thing. Oh, yeah, no, give us a happy ending. You know, because what, what should happen and what happens in the, in the in, if you watch the TV cut, they actually show where he says to the emperor, he says, I'm now going to marry Princess Irland and I'm going to become emperor as a result. Like, this will establish me within the Landstrad, within the, the feudal lords that I'm now emperor. 
And then he actually goes and, you know, kind of has this apology scene to Chani. He's like, you will always be like right. my consort. And, you know, the same way his father had a, his primary concubine who he didn't marry because she was Benny Gesserit. Um, so there's that change. And in the, again, in the Spice Diver cut, he cuts the rain scene. It just goes, he marries her. He gets, he gets you know, the, the, the sort of the, the emperor's uh, uh, cape is put on him. And, you know, little Alia, the, his sister, says, because he is the Kiwastis Hadarak, and no rain, we go to the ending, you know, which is a much better uh, faithful ending to to what the book has. So, um, Also kind of has a Godfather quality to it. Yeah. You know, Coppola's on my mind now, obviously, but the, <laughs> the legacy, the sense that you make sacrifices to your own happiness in order to hold power. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's a much more adult take on it than Lynch was capable of in, in the version that we saw or the, the theatrical release anyway. But it's it's even like there were even like because I watched them both back to back it's even within within scenes that like beats and information are just were cut out for for I guess to get it down to the for speed yeah for yeah. speed and you're like, it's like they cut out like the shout out Mapes who's the Linda Hunt as the as the uh, the housekeeper there's a whole other scene uh, that's in the TV cut and again in the, the Spice Diver cut where she goes to Jessica and they establish what the Chris knife is, which you see these white knives, which are actually like made from the teeth of sandworms and you cannot sheath one without drawing blood on it. Um, that whole, and she basically establishes her loyalty to Jessica and to, to protect Paul. That's gone in the theatrical cut. The other horrible thing that they cut out of the theatrical cut is once he first encounters the Fremen, he is supposed to have a fight where he first kills uh, this other Fremen named Jameis who, who uh, you know, challenges him to combat. And he, you know, and he's like scared to fight because he's never actually killed someone before and he's never fought without a shield. Which, right, which we see in the beginning that he's, he's an <clears throat> adept fighter but only yeah. when he's got the confidence yeah. and protection. So in this, he, he kills Jameis and of course within the Fremen, then afterwards they're like, okay, now you get his water plus you also get his property which is his wife and his two sons. And you'll notice in the hatch cut, there's these two little kids that are always yeah, yeah, hanging yeah. around. Those are Jameis' sons. You're like, who the hell are these kids? <laughs> they don't establish who they are in the theatrical cut. You're like, why are these two little kids always hanging around whenever he's demonstrating things or doing things? And and they also show the water ceremony where they like they put his they put Jameis's dead body into this thing and they get his water and like here you now have his water, right. um, but without any context or. Yeah, well, they're like everyone, you know, water is life and, you know, everyone sort of, and, and I think the other thing that probably confused viewers at the time also was his use of metric. You know, it's the future and he's talking about kilometers and meters and decaliters, um, you know, which probably confused the hell out of an American audience used to imperial measurements. Well, um, everything's hostile in the future yeah. to um, American audiences. It is this, it's this remarkably, I, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase it. It's as though every editorial decision is wrong. In the wrong way, rather than wrong in a right way, rather than coming up with some accident that makes sense, like the the drift in the Elephant Man, where we have we sort of fall into these dreamlike sequences that are horrific and and they don't really make sense and they couldn't have happened, but they are um, allegorically correct. They steer us into the movie. I mean, it, John Merrick's mother was not trampled by elephants, right. but he <laughs> dreams it, and so we see it, and it's it's poetic in a way. And then to see Dune, where Everything is not just literal and spelled out for us, but then stuff isn't because we just jump past it. Yeah. It's such a it's such a jarring experience to look at it as a David Lynch film because 
you can see his textures and you can feel, I mean, all the actors yeah. are people we've come to know yes. from him, association, like McLachlan, obviously, yeah. but everybody else too. Yeah. And still, somehow, it's like an impersonator. Yes. Like you, you, and this is, I think this is why people keep returning to it. There's a sense that if you listen to it at the right frequency, you can hear his voice. Yes. But I, I know other... Know we can. Yeah. I, I, but I mean, I always, I, I have issues with, my problem also with Lynch is I think like I think Blue Velvet is is his best film. Maybe also Wild at Heart, which I love, just because okay. it's sort of the beginning of Nicolas Cage going over the top and being the Nicolas Cage that we know and love today, or at least I I love him right. uh, for how insane he is. Because it was about 1990 that he decided with what was Vampire's Kiss, which I think was the first over the top performance. Yeah, there which, was Vampire's Kiss and, and Raising then, Arizona. Yeah, Raising Arizona. Uh, but I, and yeah, and then still sort of going back and forth. It could have gone either way. And then and then Wild at Heart, which is you know essentially David Lynch remaking um, Wizard of Oz uh, with, with all Elvis. The, yeah. Yes, with all these references to the Yellow Brick Road and all of the Wicked Witch and all that. Um, I subsequently think Lynch like. I guess like Fellini sort of falls in love with, I hate to say it, the smell of his own farts or his own aesthetic and can't break out of that. And everything's just become, you know, like it's very Lynchian. He has his own adjective of here's the type of film he's supposed to make. And the films become more incomprehensible. Like Mulholland Drive, I have a friend, director friend who loves that film. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I'm like... Who's the cowboy? It was like, well, that's just a red herring. How does how does that fit into the story? Ah, oh, it's just a red herring. I'm like, so it's just put in there for nothing, just to freak you out. And um, and then like uh, with Inland Empire, I don't even know what <laughs> the hell was going on there. I got about forty minutes into going, what is this? I don't understand this. But then occasionally he'll make something, you know, completely different. Like uh, I recently watched a straight story, which mm-hmm. which is a lovely little, but completely so uncharacteristic film, unlynchian. Other than you know, certain people who you know, like the what's his name, Everett McGill, who plays Stillgar, right, and he's yeah. in he's in Twin Peaks. He shows up. Um, um, Harry Stanton seems to have been. Lynchian. Harry Dean Stanton seems to have been Lynchian yes. before he was yes, Lynchian, even. Of course, yeah. Who, yeah, and who just shows up at the end? Is, yeah, is yeah. Because yeah. when he gets there, that's who it has to be. Yeah, <laughs> it was either that or it had to be Dennis Hopper. It had to be one oh, of yeah. the two. <laughs> Hopper wouldn't have been old enough at the time. <laughs> yeah, pro- probably not. Yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, in general, and I was never a big Twin Peaks fan. Mm. I think again, the again, if you don't remember back in the '90s, the crazy hysteria over that oh yeah over that that series when when it came out um and then and then sort of died off very quickly because it only ran like two seasons and it, it was notorious for having like the highest ratings and having like the lowest ratings yeah by well, the by end the of its second season it was actively disappointing people yeah every and, week. and no one had any idea what was going on it was one of these if you didn't you came into it in episode five you and this was before you could go back and like sure. stream TV. If you hadn't watched it live when it came out, you were like completely lost and going, I don't understand this. Why is there a little person speaking backwards? And what is Kyle McLaughlin? Who is he talking to on his little tape recorder? And I, I just never got into it. And I know there are still people who are huge. Oh, yeah. Twin Peaks is like when the new show came out, they were so excited. And I'm like, I never got through the original series. And, you know, I can't can't get into it now. So... I think the sum of his career is is so fascinating, but I think there's been a lot of disappointments in in, in to me anyway with this sort of later work, which I don't think is he can't 
he can't get out of his own way in terms of, I just have to be weird. I have to be David Lynch. And you're like, but you're not really saying anything. And anybody else would just be, you know, dismissed for doing this, but you get away with it because of your previous work because and your, expectations. Repu- your yeah. expectations and your, 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 uh, your persona now. Um, and I know now he's very much into transcendental med- meditation. Oh, he yeah, runs he like a, for a while. yeah a film school that melds filmmaking with tr- with with transcendental meditation. Um, As you do, yeah. And I, I remember like actually going on and applying to it because I was like, well, how, anyone can can apply. <laughs> and it was like, here you have to. Here's the premise, and now complete this premise of like a, a, a you you receive a box and it contains a, a finger and a watch. And now what happens next at the police station? Um, I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not unlike this, the setup of Blue Velvet. Yeah. So maybe it, he is just repeating that same thing. Yeah. But this was like the student, this was like, okay, now I'll write the remaining five pages of this screenplay and this is part of your admission to, <sighs> to the master's program. So, okay. Um, I mean, you could just write a Dune sequel. Yeah. <sighs> but the police station is on Arrakis. <laughs> so it's on you now, David Lynch. It's, um, it is like, he, he has had such a a specific, distinctive, and limiting career, mm-hmm. I think. Like, I, I think, personally, for me, he peaks with Lost Highway, mm-hmm. where he sort of codifies everything he's going to be doing for the rest of his career. Like, all of the, the next movies are in there. Right. Rattling around. Mulholland Drive is really just a reversal on it, structurally. And that only happened because it started as a television series, right? Like, he laid out all this stuff that would have paid off somewhere, I right. think, the same way he did in Twin Peaks, where there are a bunch right. of elements waiting to be... Right, Mulholland finished. Drive was originally a pilot. Yeah, he, it was a two-hour pilot that he recut into a yeah, he, maybe only an hour long. Yeah, he bought it back from ABC when they passed on it and then made it into a feature. Yeah, which so, is where the third act comes from and why right. everything is suddenly explained. Well, not everything, but certain things are very specifically explained and other things are just hanging. Right. And I remember people, yeah, in 2001 there were explainers and all sorts of deep dives. Salon had this amazing one at the time where it's just like, this means this. It's like, okay, but it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you think it does or doesn't because the film itself doesn't care. It's only interested in the relationship between Betty and Rita as it applies to the reversal that, that is revealed at the end. We, we did a whole episode on this. But, <laughs> but, um, but he is such a, a weird, specific talent that I don't know that it could have gone any other way. Like there was never a path for him to make conventional film. Like this is his Star Wars. Dune would have been right. his sci-fi epic. Be, because he turned down uh, Return of the Jedi. Jedi. Yeah. But, um, but he wanted to do something else. Right. And they gave him this, and this is a property. I mean, you know, there's there's Hodorowski's Dune. There, yes. There's evidence. There's the Giger drawings. There's all sorts of stuff that people had tried to crack this before. Right. Um, apparently, David Lean was offered it at one point, which makes no sense to me. David, okay, that I didn't. I, I actually had sort of, I did a bit of research on oh, the yeah. history because I, I know Ridley Scott... Yes. Because basically, J- Jodorowsky had acquired the rights in 75, yeah. and of course, you can watch Jodorowsky's Dune, which I, I recommend, because Jodorowsky is insane, and his <laughs> version would have been 12 hours long with Salvador Dali as the uh, the the emperor and all kinds of insane things. Yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderful documentary yeah. that somehow manages to avoid the—the like, the punchline for the doc to me is that, you know— He's interviewed, everybody's interviewed, and everybody yep. keeps saying, oh, it never would have happened, it never would have happened. And then Frank Pavich managed to, to hold off until the last two minutes. Hodorowsky's saying, oh, it would have been 12 hours long. Yes. I mean, of course, you just had to. And just the idea that this was the thing that no one talks about for the entire documentary is like, it was impossible. Yeah. As, but we got this far. 
Right. I find that fascinating. Yeah. It, but and, yeah, there were other people on it. Yeah, before yeah. And then, then after. Yeah, because because then after you know Jodorowsky failed to get the film made, then um, Dino De Laurentiis did acquire the rights. I think in like '79, and had Ridley Scott after doing Alien. He was at and worked on it for like six months. Apparently, with a screenplay written by Frank Herbert, who. Uh, and again, it was a three-hour, apparently a three-hour screenplay, and they were like, it has to be a three-hour movie. And apparently Ridley Scott just sort of burnt out when he realized how huge this was going to be and maybe impossible and then was offered Blade Runner and just said, oh, I'll just make this movie instead, which probably was the wise choice in, in history. Yeah. Um, then, of course, we have the the sci-fi miniseries in 2000 um, with William Hurt and then the sequel they did as well, which is – also doesn't work really just because of budget limitations and also mainly also because they their big get was they got Victorio Storaro to shoot it, who was originally going to shoot the Jodorowsky, uh, which is how they were sort of promoting it, like, oh, he was the original cinematographer. Apparently the producers were originally planning to shoot like on location in, in, in Morocco, like in the deserts, but shoot digitally, which back then would have been, you know, pretty cutting edge, you know, along with Lucas, uh, who had just done... Uh, uh, Phantom Menace. Menace. Yeah. Um, it's but always Lucas. It all comes back yeah, to him. Storaro convinces them, no, let's shoot on film with my Univision 3 perfs. We can save money and we'll use, my son has this Translite company and we'll use Translites and we'll shoot it all in studio. And the result is that you never have any sense that you're in the desert. Yeah. A movie about the desert and you're clearly on this little patch of sand in front of a backdrop and it just looks horrible and a lot of the, in many ways, more faithful to the book, but just production value. The costumes are atrocious in terms of over the top. And um, no one seems to be, I, I've only seen the miniseries. I haven't seen Children of Doom, but I've only seen yeah. the 2000 miniseries. Um, no one seems to be fully aware of it. Yes. They're all just sort of dazed. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why. Well, and I guess it's, there's nothing to react to or there's nothing to play from. Or. Yeah, I think it was largely dismissed. The other fascinating thing I find now is you talk, you talk to younger people, they think Dune is a video game. Like I was talking to this, you know, a friend of mine, he's a 19-year-old son. He's like, oh, it's Dune. Now it's based on that video game, right? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> was there a video game? Apparently it was like there was a video game that came out, you know, 10 years ago that apparently was quite popular with the kids. And that's no idea. like talking about it as a video game. And this is where people sort of lose track of what the, the real provenance of things is now, which is really really sad so many books how do you mistake that yeah but then again okay so after the the miniseries then paramount uh got the rights to it in 2008 so peter berg was attached for several years then he dropped out then pierre morel who did the transporter oh, movies right, yeah. he was gonna do it they got nowhere with that the rights uh lapsed then legendary picked it up they put uh Villeneuve on it. Villeneuve, yeah. Um, and the, the movie is, they've only shot half of it, um, which is the other thing. What they're releasing, they're only doing half the, the, only doing book. Half the book. So I actually talk, I actually, I, I, I actually talked to a, a fairly senior crew member uh, a couple of months ago, right after they had wrapped, and I was trying to <laughs> rock solid NDAs. It's very impressive on this film that there have only been two leaks of any back, uh, you know, behind the scenes imagery, one by a crew member, of uh, there's and you can go on Reddit, you can see it. Some people say it's an ornithopter. I think it might be a carryall. Okay. It's like it's a basically a crew guy with a dune shirt, and you see this model in the background, like full scale model in the background. Um, apparently, he got fired, got in a lot of trouble, 
And then there was Josh Brolin uh, posted on Instagram a 10-second video of him on location just showing sand dunes. Apparently, he got in a <laughs> shitload of trouble for posting that. But they have released nothing. There's been no trailers, no con- no concept art. Other than who the cast are, you don't know anything about it so far. It's still a year away, December 18th, 2020. <laughs> um, but I couldn't even get out of this group. How far into the book does it go? He's like, I cannot tell you. That's um, apparently, the, the latest news I heard is they're, they're starting to like dust off the. I guess what they had to have written the entire screenplay, and they're like they're still starting to look at it, but they're still a year out from releasing the film. I'm assuming a teaser trailer is going to come for for this Christmas for it. I'm hoping. I think for something this big, you would almost you, need to. You're stoke. like you're going to have to release something. You you at this point, you've been in post for two months now. You've got to have something cut together. You must have a trailer, uh, something. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that's my Christmas present, that I'm going to get a, a taste of uh, Villeneuve's Dune. And hopefully it, it succeeds because, of course, if it fans out and, and crashes like Blade Runner 2049 does, there won't be a sequel. You won't get the second half. And Villeneuve could be done as a getting the big budgets because, I mean – you kind of get two kicks at the can, and yeah. his last kick was not good. Really? I don't oh, think didn't like it. I, I didn't like. No, it's not a matter of me. Li- I did you, not. Just in terms I didn't of like it in terms of like it. It bombed because they spent so much money on it, and it did not recoup its money uh, overseas, which is where you need to because yeah. no one was interested in the sequel to this old film from 1983 that you know is a cult classic, but also was a box office failure at the time. So, so with, do you think with Dune there's a similar expectation or because, <sighs> you know, it's an old property, the first film bombed? I, I don't know that there are as many crazy Dune fans like me who are excited uh, for this film. I think it's like Blade Runner. Yeah, I went and saw, I did not want a sequel to Blade Runner, but of course I, you know, paid my 20 bucks and went and saw it in IMAX and, you know, was like, whoa, there's two hours and 40 minutes of my life. I don't get back. Um, and I thought that the movie destroyed, destroyed some of the concepts in the, in the, in the original film, like the idea that Deckard is an android, is a replicant as well, is destroyed because now he's an old man. So you wrecked that ambiguity. And which is, oh, here's another interesting, if we're talking about theatrical cuts and reduxes, yeah, yeah. I am also in the minority where I prefer the theatrical cut of Blade Runner with the voiceover, really? which... With the the stock footage of from, from uh, Shining, yeah. the Shining at the end, with the cheesy, we didn't know how long we had together, but then again, who does? I love all that Cause, again because that's when I saw it originally. That's the version in my brain. The what the his director's cut I guess came out in nineteen ninety ninety two um, first yeah ninety two yeah cut came out yeah ninety two yeah um, and going well, uh, what happened to the voiceover and why is there uh, a unicorn uh, <laughs> in the middle of this um, so I don't like that version as much as and that's again and I think again that was Ridley Scott it was taken away from him like they were like this movie makes no sense. We need to add voice. We'll add voiceovers now. It'll make sense. I like the voiceovers because it made it much more film noir. Yeah, know, in yeah. that regard, and I think it becomes the director's cut becomes a. I don't know. I just don't. And maybe it's just time because I saw it when I, again I was like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, you're impressionable it's, youth. It's it just embeds in your brain because that's when all the things that that you love, basically between the ages of ten and twenty, those are your core memories. Those are the things you can't forget. I see a movie and I can't remember what happened in it like a week ago. (laughs) 
And but I can remember distinctly, you know, things from movies that I saw in that period, which is also when I totally got into films and was watching tons of films at the time. Yeah, so. no, you're that's exactly what you said. Your <clears throat> consciousness is forming. So yeah, everything is much more vivid. And yeah, so um, what else? So is Dune still something that you carry with you, like the original experience of it, or the versions subsequently? Has it? I mean, this sort of gets us to the to the key question of the podcast, which is, you know, like how has it influenced your own work? Because Magic uh, has, I'm thinking, one special effect, if any. <laughs> but it's but it's all about telling this massive, complex story through dialogue, yes. through inference, yes. and implication. So, I, I don't know if that the, the influences of Dune. I mean, it's, Dune is certainly. I am. I love science fiction, and it it certainly is is a book that like I reread it. I reread the book like last year and actually for the first time read the the subsequent books as well, which I'd never actually read, like Dune oh, yeah. the Scion, Children of Dune, uh, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune. I did burn out after Heretics and didn't get to read Chapter House. And I will definitely read Dune again probably next year before Villeneuve's right, film comes it. out again. Um, in terms of its influence on my I, – I mean I just love – you know, Ma- Magic was also a very low-budget, micro-budget film. It was also me. Primarily, I work as a producer. I know what's possible. And most most times when, when films are presented to me or when people ask me to produce a film, I'm like, the script is too big. You need to reduce the elements. You cannot do this on the budget you have. Like 90% of the time, this is the problem. And most directors and writers, they're so divorced from the actual physical – um, technical aspects of actually making something that they don't they don't they don't understand it or they don't believe you. So when I was writing Magic, it was very much I have to make this manageable because I know what I can achieve with no budget. Right. Um, yeah, you and, have a cottage, you have an apartment, yeah. you have a bar, and these were all things that I knew I had access to. And it was like also keep your keep your cast small. Um, you know, all the scenes are two handers, which is again something that. I see novice or, or, you know, even experienced writers will write a scene with like, I was doing a TV show where they, there was scenes with 13 people in them. And we're like, uh, you know, the sound guy's like, I can't mic 13 people. Like, how do we, he's like asking other sound people. It's like, how do I, what would you, they're like, what stupid thing, <laughs> what are you on that has this many people in it? And so it's like, and it's just the coverage. You can't cover, I can't do singles on 13 people on the, on the, with the time we have. So it's, it, the, the, the magic is very much born out of necessity, and someone's like, "Well, it's yeah, it's all people talking." It's but it's a science fiction movie with with yeah, with no real no 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 real effects. Everything's really done in camera, yeah. um, and it's all conceptual anyway. Yeah, so it's- and it's all about the the ideas behind it, and you know that for me is what makes it's it's always about story that makes something interesting and special effects. Just you know, are are icing on the cake, but if you don't actually have a cake. It's pointless. You can't just eat icing. Well, some people do. Oh, you absolutely can. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not good to eat that instant stuff out of the jar. It'll, <laughs> it'll just make you sick. And at the end of the day, it's not a pleasant experience. So, so, but I, I love big epic space opera. I love reading that stuff. And, you know, I love Star Wars, even, even though, again, time and place when I first saw them, sure, sure. go back and watch the original Star Wars and wow, this really is so clunky it's a dialogue but it's a great story again you know using the sort of the joseph campbell the sort of the universal myths which again features in dune you know it's very much the same idea the chosen one and all, all these sort of universal ideas and just the scale of it i love so 
Magic is very much the opposite of that, where I can't do that. Um, God knows I'd love to make a space opera uh, series or, or movie at some point, but this was like, what can I do practically with the resources that I have and color within the lines and make a good film that's not, you know, special effects driven, but it's still sci-fi. So. Would you tackle a Dune? Would you be willing to? I mean, just given how daunting it has been for literally everyone else who ever tried well, it. Well, I think also there are certain, I mean, certainly there are other awesome science fiction properties that are out there that, that I think could be adapted. Certain things also, they just, they, they just exist as their, their, their best, you know, Dune will always be a great novel. And it's just like, just reread the novel. Like, you can get so much enjoyment out of it, rereading it and reading it again because it is... There's so much detail in it, and every time I read it, I was like, oh, I didn't really see that part of it before. And it's this obsession with trying to, also this weird obsession people have of being faithful. I have to be faithful to the source material. It's like, yeah. well, you're taking something that's one thing, it's a book, and you're making it into a movie, and if you're not going to do something different with the movie, why make the movie? Um, and very literal adaptations, people get upset with them too, like... Um, um, what's his name who did the original Watchmen and 300? Um, oh, Zack Snyder, yeah. Yeah. Where he's shooting this, he's treating the comics like storybooks. Yeah. And and I know people who've been fans of the book just think, well, this is basically you just shot the, the comic book. So, so he made the faithful adaptation and you're still upset with it. Um, you know, and it's much more interesting that if you've been watching the new Watchmen um, uh, TV show, which is like, Basically, it's really a sequel to Watchmen. It's like here's everything happened in Watchmen happened in the '80s, and now it's 2019, and it's fascinating. It's a sequel and a prequel somehow. Yeah, which I find and absolutely and, you, and you've taken all the cool elements and you've updated and you've made it relevant to 2019 as well. Talking about race and reparations and all these things, and still talking about vigilantism, police brutality, and it's like wow, this is you've made this totally relevant, and you know. And, and great that you've taken the, that book as a jumping off point to make something else. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, Kubrick did this a lot where he would take, you know, a minor, you know, a, a book and, and it would become a jumping off point. Like, the like uh, notoriously, Stephen King hated yeah. The Shining um, because he took so many liberties. Like, this is my jumping off point. I'm making a film. Or, like, Barry Lyndon, Barry which is, like, a very small, to, yeah. minor novel by, by Thackeray, but he makes it into this this... Great film, which, again, I, again, a film I just revisited recently. I hadn't probably seen it since it was on VHS when I was a teenager. I thought, oh, this movie is so boring. <laughs> and then rewatched it recently going, this is, you know, I love Kubrick and I never had gone back to that film before until like a, a couple months ago. And go, oh, what a beautiful movie. And plus, I also love the fact that he was using a lot of the same cast from, uh, from Clockwork Orange, which, of course, I've seen a gazillion times. And it's like, oh, there's... There's so and so. There's yeah. so like there's all these the minor characters are all all show up so in Barry Lyndon. Strange new. It's like yeah, he had his Mercury players, and it's like oh, I'm going to reuse them again. So it's like <laughs> fantastic. So yeah, it's it's um it's long been a property that I have I've appreciated but not really connected to mm -hmm. in a weird way. And so now that we're looking at another one and that we're revisiting this, I'm sort of, I'm really curious to see what Villeneuve does with it mm -hmm. because his textures and his approach will be completely different from the previous adaptations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, w when you're saying people want or say they want a faithful adaptation, I kind of want him to do whatever the hell he wants with it because the reason I remember Lynch's version rather than the, the sci-fi channel mm -hmm. version is because he went for something. Yes. And the, the sort of the Baroque, grotesque, 
insanity of it all is yeah. the thing that makes me want to watch it again, even though I know I don't like it. Yes. Well, it's it's again, it's it's a magnificent failure uh, of a film, and there are you know other examples. Uh, one of my other favorite examples of a movie that's a magnificent failure. It doesn't work, but it's visually beautiful, and I've watched it several times. Is uh, Tarsum's The Fall? Oh yeah. It's wonderfully beautiful. It's incomprehensible. <laughs> it doesn't really work as a film, but there but are yeah, every frame of it is some it. images in it that are just like, well, you just had so much money and just were able to, and somehow someone let you do all this stuff. You've got an elephant swimming and these huge, you know, uh, scenes with like, you know, flags and, and silk just blowing in the wind and beautiful movie, um, but a complete disaster. But Yeah, I could not explain this, the plot if I was yeah. forced to. yeah. But I've, I've watched but it several images, times, yeah, and I'm like almost head. going like now talking about it. God, I should go. I should go back and watch that again because <laughs> it, it's it's quite. And, and Dune is like that too. It's just it's been with me since I you know 35 years now since it came out, and I just can't let can't let it go. Um, and I, I hope I hope Villeneuve does something interesting. I, my 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 expectations are 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 low um, okay. because I don't know I've. I, <sighs> I've always had an issue, some kind of issue with every film that, that Villeneuve has done. At some level, again, I did not like 2049, uh, Blade Runner 2049. I thought it was a pointless sequel. Um, I, it was also way too long. Um, the, I thought there may have been a good two-hour movie in there. You okay. could, again, you did not, again, un, unlike Dune, it didn't need to be this long. Um, uh even Arrival, I know, which a lot of people really enjoy. I just thought there's always some, like, p- sort of plot point. I can't even remember what it was in Arrival where it just something didn't quite make sense to me. Um, and, and there always seems to be that one element where I'm just, like, in incendies, I'm like, why doesn't the mother just tell them, like, the wh- what their origin is and who their father is? Why they got to go on this whole... I was like, well, because there would be no movie. Yeah, because it's a stage play. It seems kind of, yeah, it seems all very sort of contrived, and that issue is never really addressed. There always seems to be something in his... So I just hope that the the storytelling is is put first and foremost um, in his adaptation of Dune, and it doesn't get too caught up in the special effects and the pageantry... And that, and and that that it has its own distinctiveness and style. I mean, one's hoping that it'll be a movie sort of because it seemed this seems to be the thing that you know it's a movie about ecology. It's a movie about an environment, um, which is very sort of again with climate change and everything on people's minds. That this is sort of more relevant. That's in the book. That obviously wasn't an issue for for Lynch back in 1983. But maybe this is something that you play up. Um, they're talking about sort of the role of women. You know, there have been sort of comments made by by um, by Rebecca Ferguson, who's playing uh, Lady Jessica, how she's more empowered, even though in the book the women are, the Bene Gesserit are very powerful and, you know, all women who are sort of c- controlling in their own way, controlling the men. So I think that's going to be played up a lot more. They're going to play down the fact that she's just the concubine, which is what what uh what she's referred to in the book and how Chani is basically in the same role she's not his wife she's his concubine yeah it would be um, interesting to see a film that actually confronts that stuff yeah and and i think one hopes that that's sort of where i think in vilna being savvy enough and knowing you're making a movie in 2019 that's where you're going to go with it 
Who yeah. knows? Because we've seen nothing and know nothing about this movie yet. So. I get the feeling you're enjoying it's, the anticipation as it, much as it you is. Um, but I'm also like, because I'm old, I'm I'm jaded. I can't. I hate it when you know the, the propensity of people online where they see a trailer and suddenly, you know, after the Force Awakens trailer, everyone's there polling people, going, "This will be the greatest Star Wars movie ever." It's like right. you haven't seen it. No. You don't know. You've seen the marketing. Yeah. Uh, again, and how many times have you seen a great trailer and it's a complete disappointment? And I think Netflix has perfected this, where you watch a trailer for a Netflix film and you go, I don't need to see the movie. They've spoiled everything. They've shown me all the best moments in two minutes and the movie will be a letdown because it's nothing more than a, con- a, you know, a condensation of that two minutes in the trailer. Yeah, this know? is why I do my best to avoid stuff, uh, all marketing. If I can, I just uh, yeah. I see it cold. I want the movie to show me what it wants it's, to show me. It's really good. Actually, I should, I should follow that more instead of just clicking on as <laughs> everybody like, oh, it's out. It's like the new rise of, like, the new rise of, of Skywalker trailer. It's like, I have no clue what this movie is about. You basically, half of it is clips from all the other movies and grand score making, telling us this is it. Even though we know this is not it, there will be more because, you know, uh, IP. Disney paid how much money? How many Four billions? Billion dollars. And yeah. I know they've already made that back, but, you know, it's all about making $20 billion. It's all about making a trillion dollars now with this franchise. So They'll get there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's exhausting. It kind of is, uh, yeah. Episode 10, McClunky. <laughs> McClunky. It's coming. All right. My thanks to Aaron Barry, who's on his way to Germany right now to screen Magic at the Berlin Sci-Fi Film Fest. If you're there on Friday, November 29th, it's playing at 8pm at the Babylon Theatre. And if not, well, watch the skies. It'll come back. You can find Aaron on Twitter at MagicFilm, M-A-J-I-C-F-I-L-M, all one word. And you can find Dune on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also on iTunes and Google Play. The legitimate versions, anyway. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our shiny new theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or this show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week.